So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we'll be going into the second part of our episode on preventing the primary cesarean section. And today, we'll be talking about promoting physiologic labor and birth. Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So first, we'll review why reducing low-risk unplanned cesarean section matters. And secondly, we'll define ways to support physiologic birth through shared decision-making, collaborative labor, and systems-based changes. So Faye, in our last podcast, we talked about preventing the primary C-section and kind of just to give a quick review of that. We talked about why reducing the cesarean section rate matters, speaking again about the overall cesarean delivery rate in the United States increased over 60% between 1996 and 2009, or from 20.7% to 32.9%. We talked about that there are tons of risks with cesarean section, including increased risk of bleeding, infection, risk of surgical injury, pain, recovery time, thrombotic events, just to name a couple of them. Um, And we also talked about the fact that the Joint Commission is coming and looking at the nulliparous term singleton vertex, or NTSV, cesarean delivery rate, um, with public reporting to compare hospital to hospital starting July 1st, 2020. Um, So get ready to look for that. We then kind of moved in that podcast to talking about why we should decrease this cesarean rate and how we could do it, mostly focusing on the ACOG-SMFM safe labor consensus and thinking about labor dystocia. What are we going to do this time around, though, Faye, that's a little bit different? So this time we're going to talk, obviously, about decreasing the primary cesarean section rate, but we're going to focus a little bit more on how to promote physiologic labor and birth. 
Um, and we'll be talking about that in three ways. So one is through shared decision-making. Another is through collaborative labor and talking about collaborative care. And finally, we're going to talk a little bit about some systems-based changes that we can do for this. So to start us off, we're going to be talking a little bit more about shared decision-making. So just to define what shared decision-making is, um, this is a framework for taking situations with various individuals with different sets of knowledge and belief systems and priorities and all coming together to form a mutually satisfying plan to get everyone where they want to go. Um, as you can imagine, you know, when you have different providers with different knowledge bases and the patient who's coming from a different setting, this is something that is very important in terms of increasing patient engagement um, and reducing risk with resultant improved outcome, satisfaction, and treatment adherence, as stated by Committee Opinion 587. So it's all well and good, I think, for us to say that, but how do we go about doing that in the labor room? So a few tools um, that we can talk about. One is using a partogram. I feel like every time I say the word partogram, I think of like the Zhang partogram or like the Friedman curve mm -hmm. or something like that. And you're like, how do I make this accessible to the patient? What we currently have at Women and Infants, I actually really like. It's a board where you essentially show the patient where they are in their labor course comparing themselves to others. So you show them kind of where the upper and lower limits of normal are. And usually, you know, 95% of women will have progressed to this point in their labor curve. And so this allows your patient to kind of see, okay, it looks like I'm going right along the curve with other women. And that means that my labor seems pretty normal. Or they can see themselves actually falling off that labor curve and saying, oh, it does look like my labor curve is a little bit different. And that kind of helps them also come to the conclusion with you if you do think that you need to do some type of intervention. And that allows the patient, I think, to have a lot more autonomy and understanding of interventions that we as providers may want to do without feeling like we are coming at them with an intervention that they don't understand and may not entirely understand why we want to do those interventions. The next few things would be things like discussion of a birth plan. And again, I feel like every time I hear the word birth plan, Nick, from patients, I like want to knock my head against the wall because it's always something that I'm like, this is unrealistic. You know, like patients are coming to me like, I don't want a C-section. Um, I don't want anybody to check my cervix during labor, all those things. And of course, these are the patients who end up with the most complicated deliveries. It sounds like that crunchy granola California has really gotten out of your face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I talk about birthing plans, this should be something that the patient and the provider has discussed before they enter the labor room. So you've seen your patient throughout their pregnancy course. The birth plan should be something that you hand them in terms of a piece of paper to write down their thoughts, their wishes, and things like that at their very first prenatal visit or you know early in their pregnancy. And that way they can bring that back to you and you can talk to them about the expectations of labor, their goals, and kind of identify something that's mutually rewarding for both of you. Because of course, you know, you may have to tell your patient early on and set that expectation that it's really impossible to not do any cervical exams during their labor course. Or you may have to tell them that they have individual risk factors or pregnancy complications that make it impossible for us not to monitor their baby or not do intermittent monitoring or not put in an IV or give them Pitocin. 
And then the third thing is patient education resources. And this may be individual to every individual's hospital. So you can give them things that the patient can read about. So if someone, for example, has gestational diabetes, giving them educational resources to read about gestational diabetes, and again, to make it so that the patient understands where we're coming from and why we want to do those interventions that we may want to do. Or it may empower the patient to say, you know what, I have a pretty normal prenatal course and I, I don't really want you know all of that monitoring. I am okay to go without um, a, an epidural and therefore um, also maybe go without an IV because I don't want those interventions. Or it may be okay for me to have intermittent monitoring because I have a very normal and non-complicated prenatal course. And one thing that I have found has been helpful is a website called birthtools.org, which does highlight a lot of things um, in layman terms that you can go over with your patient. The other thing I think we talked a little bit about is promoting these patient desires in labor um, or helping patients cope with labor. Nick, how do we do that? Because I think one of the biggest things for our hospital is helping patient cope in labor. And, you know, I think in our hospital, like 80% or something like that of our patients end up getting epidurals. Yeah. And I think this is one thing that's commonly overlooked and it's something that's hard to fit into our routine, right? Let's talk about today how you think you want to cope in labor, particularly for somebody who maybe this is their first pregnancy and their first labor and they really don't have a good sense other than just hearing from other people what they're getting into. Um, right. And people have different methods and different desires. And so, but getting a sense of this during prenatal care may end up being helpful or at least something that's kind of like anticipatory guidance towards the labor or even the induction process. Absolutely. So you should discuss with patients both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options for coping with labor. I mean, again, some people want the epidural outright and there's nothing wrong with that. Again, it's a very popular choice and we know that it's effective in terms of analgesia during labor, but other people don't want uh, epidurals. And labor support is actually something that has been shown to help reduce risk of primary cesarean section. Um, continuous labor support can be administered by almost anyone. It could be friends or family. Um, the patient may have a hired doula or nurse. Um, midwives and physicians can also be involved in this continuous labor support. This takes on a lot of different forms. Um, we can talk about physical support, which might be just with positioning, touch, cold, heat, control of the environment in terms of like even dimming and changing lights, emotional support, just being present, using distraction, instructional or informational support that can include assistance or instruction on relaxation and breathing and using effective communication techniques at different points in the labor course. And then also just being an advocate during labor support. So building trust, providing security, giving laboring women as much control as you can during you know, what is a physiologic but oftentimes uncontrollable and takes lots of different terms type of process. Absolutely. Um, one thing that kind of can be a challenge in terms of these desires during labor and some of the coping things, Faye, is nutrition and hydration. Um, yes. <laughs> and I know it's a sticking point, not just at our hospital, but in hospitals across the country and a big sticking point between physicians, providers of different levels, like in you know, even just philosophies from person to person, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very common. It happens in our hospital, which is we don't let laboring women eat. We 
basically give them an environment where they have nutritional deprivation, which can be defined as either making women NPO or just giving them clear liquids. At our institution, we usually give women only clear liquids and IV hydration. You know, there is good thought behind why we want to make women NPO or, you know, only give them IV hydration or PO liquids. Um, And that's because we're afraid that women are going to somehow aspirate their stomach contents in case they end up needing general anesthesia for an emergency cesarean section or what have you. Or there's a fear that they'll vomit and then aspirate and they're not able to, you know, clear that vomitus because of their decreased motility, because of their epidural, or because they have their spinal during their C-section and they're laying flat and they can't turn their heads very well or sit up or whatever it is. Nick, we always want to look for the evidence behind why we don't make women eat. Because when I, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we shouldn't make women eat, right? So there was a Cochrane review that has compiled evidence related to nutrition and hydration during labor. So in terms of restriction of fluid and food during labor, there uh, in one study, there was no statistical difference in maternal or newborn outcomes related to type of birth or APGAR scores at five minutes with regards to nutritional deprivation or not. Um, there was no benefit or harm. And so from this, the Cochrane Review stated that there really was no evidence to support nutritional deprivation. It then further stated that nutritional deprivation can cause maternal distress, unbalanced nutritional status, and possibly increased pain in labor. And other studies also don't show that nutritional deprivation ensures low stomach residue or acidity. Um, and when combined with decreased use of general anesthesia in modern obstetrics, I mean, at our hospital, you know, we very, rarely. very rarely use general anesthesia because our, our anesthesiologists are so good they can get a spinal in right away. This concern for aspiration risk doesn't really provide a sound basis for implementation of withholding food or fluid from women in labor. Another Cochrane review actually looked at nine studies addressing the use of IV hydration versus oral hydration or nutritional deprivation for women in labor. Um, two of the nine studies noted a shorter duration of labor with IV fluids compared with oral fluid restriction, um, but only two of the nine studies did. And so the Cochrane review concluded that health benefits were not realized overall by use of IV fluid administration. They did suggest that women be encouraged to increase PO intake to assure adequate hydration rather than having hospital policies that require routine IV hydration. So, Faye, do we conclude here that, no, we can take out IVs and we might as well have a McDonald's on the labor floor? I mean, no, Nick. (laughs) As much as I feel like when I'm in labor, I'm going to definitely want that Big Mac, that's unfortunately not the conclusion. What I'm trying to say here is I think we should do a better job at screening women in labor for a risk of operative birth. And so for women who are screened to that low-risk cohort, if they don't want an epidural, they don't require Pitocin, maybe we can just consider placing a saline lock um, and not an IV, um, not running fluids, and promoting some PO intake in those women. All right, so now that we've talked about that controversy, Nick, let's move on a little bit. So um, the next thing that we wanted to talk about was collaborative care. So What does that mean, um, and how would that look in the labor room? Yeah, so labor is a team sport, right? You have a lot of different people that are invested in trying to be helpful with respect to labor course. So at the center of this is the laboring person. Um, There are support persons and people that are there, nurse, provider, whether that be the midwife, the obstetrician, family medicine practitioner, whoever, um, providing 24-hour in-house care. Right. Again, and the nice thing about having 
all of this collaborative effort going on is it allows the workload to be shared between those team members. So as we talked about earlier, with respect to support during labor, somebody can't be there all the time. Having that collaborative team allows for that 24-hour care to occur. It de-emphasizes hierarchy. It allows for case discussion between different levels of practitioners, the bedside nurse, the physician, the midwife, um, and even with the patient and family themselves. Um, It allows for fetal monitoring review, if applicable, um, between medical providers, and also promotes an environment of mutual respect between all persons that are there. Um, Certainly, there are some challenges with this collaborative care model. You know, there's obviously in every hospital, there's different sort of contextual things that can cause issues in terms of maybe interdisciplinary mistrust, challenges with communications, differences in skill sets, scheduling logistics, um, and even the structure of the hospital itself. But despite these challenges, we know that collaborative care is evidence-based. We jump back straight to the evidence. Studies where there have been 24-hour laborists and strip review and collaboration between groups have led to significant decreases in the NTSV cesarean rate. And actually, there have been three full studies that have demonstrated this. The most recent of which was in 2012, and with this particular study, they implemented a number of screening criteria, antepartum guidelines, communication techniques, evidence-based intrapartum guidelines, labor management strategies, a removal of a time limit for labor progress, and made sure there was availability of operative vaginal and breach delivery. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that happened, and so it's hard to like pinpoint a particular intervention. But kind of the crazy thing about this, women who were delivered by midwives in this model had a cesarean rate of 3.6%. That is crazy low. Yeah, 3.6% in any modern cohort is kind of nuts. And so on one hand, it's like, can you believe this? But then on the other hand, they put in some amazing sort of multidisciplinary care techniques that the optimist in me says, we got to try it. So why do we think this works, Nick? Yeah. So I think, you know, in these models in particular, you could say like previously this decision about cesarean section was made independently by the head honcho, right? The physician in charge. But collaborative care models introduce a lot of extra stakeholders um, who have different expertise in physiologic birth, particularly um, including midwives and laborists in that model. A team approach to care with these clinicians coming together to discuss patients leads to consideration of alternative options for labor management um, and probably helps to reduce the cesarean rate. Yeah, absolutely. So, Faye, kind of the next set of interventions we want to go on and discuss um, are really sort of interesting ones, I think, that are systems-based and structural and design challenges. Yeah, and and these are a little bit newer techniques, I think, and they're not 100% backed by, you know, randomized controlled trials, but they're things that I think we should start considering um, in terms of what we think a labor room or a hospital that delivers patients should look like. So one of these things is to talk about room design and equipment. So for a long time, you know, before modern day, hospitals were really just crowded places with a bunch of beds lined up in a row, and physicians would go from bed to bed to bed. And nowadays, we're, um, we've moved away from that. Patients usually will have individual rooms for birthing, um, and they most of these rooms probably look like the rooms in our labor and delivery, which is um, a room. There's a huge bed in the middle. There's like a recess um, 
room that's attached or maybe there's like a warmer for the baby that's attached. One side there's, you know, the EFM, the computer, the nursing station, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. There's not much for the woman to do in that labor room other than be in bed. And we know that things like upright maternal positions and mobility versus conventional care in the first and second stages of labor have um, led to more mobility in the first stage of labor and lessen the likelihood of an epidural and C-section. And in the second stage of labor, they reduce the incidence of abnormal fetal heart rate patterns, episiotomy, and operative vaginal deliveries. So clearly we're not incentivizing women in labor to get up and move around and to be distracted um, from their discomfort in, in labor. In one study in 2009, women were randomized to either standard labor rooms or this what they called an ambient room, which basically they removed the standard hospital bed, replaced it with this portable double-sized mattress in the corner of the room. And they also um, provided multiple other uh, things in the room that could distract the patient from just wanting to be in bed. 66% of the patients in the ambient room compared to only 13.3% in the standard group reported spending less than 50% of their hospital labor in bed. Mm. So clearly just some redesign of the room can make it so that the patients are more mobile and less likely to just be flat on their backs. The next thing that, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about is, is hospital design. And this is kind of interesting in terms of thinking about hospital engineering and things like that. So um, there was a team at Ariadne that investigated 12 different facilities across the country. Three of these were freestanding birth centers, four were community hospitals, three were academic hospitals, one was a women's hospital, um, and there was a Native American health services hospital. So certainly a wide range of uh, birthing locations. The C-section rate ranged from 5.1% in this freestanding birth center in Tennessee to as high as 34.9% in this community hospital in New Jersey. And they looked at something that was very interesting and compared it to the C-section rate, which was the room distance from the nurse's or provider workstation to the patient room. Hmm. And this distance ranged from nine feet in certain places to 242 feet, which um, if you want to like kind of conceptualize that is like running to third base on a baseball field, you know? They concluded that distance between the actual labor and delivery room and the nurse's workstation greatly impacted workload. And you can imagine that. You don't want to be the nurse who has to like run all the way to third base every single time she has to go see her patient. That's just exhausting. Um, And not to say that, you know, workers are lazy or nurses are lazy, but it's just going to take a lot more effort for someone to get to that room as opposed to someone who has a labor room that's three feet or nine feet from the nurse's workstation. What they determined was that travel distance required by the staff can significantly impact the amount of effort required to perform work duties in a given shift. And so when they looked at this location in New Jersey, the average distance from the nursing station to the rooms was that of about 114 feet, while at the birth center, the average distance was 23 feet. Now, is this the cause of the difference in a 5.1% rate of cesarean section versus 34.9%, you know, probably not. But certainly there is something to be said about decreasing provider workload and therefore allowing providers to spend more time doing patient care and less time running around between rooms. So certainly needs more work, more studies to truly prove that increasing physical workload may lead to more interventions or may lead to less care, um, but it's something that we can think about. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, And the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, 
in terms of hospital design is implementation of a walking path. So this is seen actually um, at uh, our neighbors uh, down the road over at Yale, New Haven. Um, they installed this interactive walking journey um, for women who come into triage and early labor but can't or won't go home because of transportation, safety concerns, or just their discomfort. So these are women who are coming in two centimeters. You know, they're not in active labor yet. You wouldn't yet admit them. What they found was that these people would – they would walk around um, the labor path and they would either come back in active labor or they would say, hmm, I actually, you know, realize that after walking this whole path that I'm not in active labor and I feel okay and I'm going to go home. And this actually decreased their primary cesarean rate by 12%, hmm. which was a pretty significant amount of, uh, of decrease. So anyway, I think what I'm trying to say here is that even though this is not necessarily the best evidence-based um, thing in terms of room design and hospital design, these are things that we can probably consider to give a better patient experience and perhaps a more physiologic uh, labor course for our patients. Faye, I think that sums up a lot of our second part now on this promoting physiologic labor and birth to prevent primary section. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we reviewed a little bit at first about our last podcast episode about why we want to prevent the primary C-section, where we talked about um, how the overall cesarean section rate is now 32.9%. And there's tons of risks with C-sections, including bleeding, infection, surgical injury, et cetera, et cetera. And also that we need to now consider the NTSV rate, not just for our patients, but also because the Joint Commission is coming and they will be reporting NTSV rates uh, publicly by July of 2020. We talked a little bit also about decreasing the primary cesarean section rate by talking about strict definitions for labor dystocia. But this time around, what we want to do is talking about how to promote normal labor and physiologic birth. We started out with this discussion embarking on a little bit of a review of shared decision-making. Again, this framework for taking situations with various individuals with different sets of knowledge, belief system, priorities, and forming a mutually satisfying plan. Um, this is ACOG endorsed. You can review Committee Opinion 587. And some of the tools that can help in the labor area for shared decision-making include partograms, a prenatal discussion of birthing plans and using patient education resources that may be individual to your hospital or using something like birthtools.org. Um, we talked a little bit about promoting patient desires in labor along with this as well and talking about coping with labor, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options, and reviewed some of the evidence about nutrition and hydration during labor. Again, we're not opening up McDonald's on the labor floor, but also want to take a more critical look based on the evidence that does exist about letting low-risk women eat and hydrate themselves during labor as opposed to keeping them NPO. We also talked a little bit more about collaborative care models, meaning bringing together the patient as well as their support people and also her providers like the nurse, midwife, obstetrician, or family practitioner. This allows for things like shared workload, 24-hour uh, care, um, mutual respect, case discussion, and EFM review. We know that there are certainly many challenges to collaborative care. However, we do know that it is evidence-based and has been shown to decrease the rate of primary cesarean section. The way that it works is that collaborative care models allow for a team-based approach to discuss physiologic labor and also brings in many thoughts and that can lead to consideration of alternative options for labor management. 
Lastly, we spoke about system-based or structural and design changes that can be incorporated into physiologic birth promotion, including changing room design, for instance, moving a bed into the corner of the room instead of in the center of the room to help women get up and out of bed and encourage that. We talked about hospital design, things as simple as like the distance between your labor and delivery room and a nursing work center um, and just reducing workload overall to help promote physiologic birth. And lastly, shout out to you guys at Yale for walking paths and other kind of coping things that you can actually implement in a hospital for low-risk women. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our second episode on preventing the primary cesarean section. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go on to Patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you donate to us, we'll give you a shout out on the show, access to all of our insider's material, and also perhaps some cool swag. You can find notes for this episode and all of our episodes, as well as an archive of our past episodes at www.creogsovercoffee.com. We know we can't possibly cover everything to help prevent the primary cesarean section, so if you have an opinion or think that we may have missed something on this show, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>